0: I'm Janine, and this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. On today's show, I'm speaking with Dorothy Wickenden, executive editor of The New Yorker, best-selling author of Nothing Daunted, host of the weekly podcast, The Political Scene, and she's gonna talk about her new book, The Agitators. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much,
0: glad to be here. How does it feel? Here you are, we are in a pandemic, and you have this book out.
1: You know, the whole thing is completely surreal. I, I mean, the whole year has been surreal. And then yeah. to do, I, I have to say that to do book talks uh, on Zoom is is un- ultimately unsatisfying when you're talking, you know, to a bookstore group because you can't see your audience. So right. anyway, you just feel like this kind of bodiless presence. But yes. uh, but it's nice, to, nice that people are taking an interest in the book. So I'm thrilled about that.
0: I think that people are also looking to reconnect with things that they didn't learn the first time out, or just learn new things. And I think the book is very timely. I think there's a lot to learn about history in understanding the present.
1: Yes. And, you know, who would have when I began this book seven long years ago, who would have thought that it would have been quite as timely as it is now? It's just kind of incredible. Although I did feel as I was writing it, there, there were the, so I have these three women and we can talk about them who are the the agitators and they're the protagonists and the, their experiences as women in America were just felt so resonant. So that was the 19th century, we're in the 21st century, but it felt to me so familiar. And they didn't feel like these ancient relics. They felt like they could be friends of mine today. How did you decide to
0: focus on this as a topic? I mean, these three women.
1: You know, it came about just totally serendipitously. I was actually working on my previous book called Nothing Daunted, which took also took place in Auburn, New York, which is the main locale for this book. And so this was, I had had no idea that this was going to be my next book. I was working on that one, which was about my grandmother who grew up in Auburn and her best friend. And it was one year in their life, um, nine years after they graduated from Smith College, uh, when they went out to they decided they weren't married they were old maids and they decided they were going to go out to the western slope of Colorado and teach school for a year in a one-room schoolhouse to the children of homesteaders. I mean a completely crazy thing to do and I was lucky enough to have her letters and when I was listening to her oral history she happened to say that her grandparents had lived next door to William H. Seward and his wife Frances and William H. Seward was among other things the Secretary of State To Mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. So I went to Auburn for the first time in my life. I went to the Seward House Museum and I checked out her story. It turned out to be true. And I got a private tour of the museum by this wonderful young woman who who didn't want to talk about William H. Seward, even though the whole museum is kind of a shrine to him. She wanted to talk about his wife, who was this very shy uh, um, not uh, did not want to have anything to do with his political life. He was ve- he was a big glad hander. She was very cerebral. She liked to stay home, read books. But also, I was told by this young woman, she was this complete abolitionist, women's rights fanatic. Whoa! And no- nobody had ever before. So she took me down into the basement kitchen, the original basement kitchen of the house, Mm -hmm. which is where Francis Seward harbored uh, fugitive slaves on the Underground Railroad. And then she said, oh, and she became very good friends with Harriet Tubman. And I said, Harriet Tubman? And she said, and you know, Tubman spent the last 48 years of her life right here in Auburn, just just a mile down the road. So I just thought that was incredible. And then she talked a little bit about Her other good friend in Auburn, who was Martha Coffinwright, a Quaker troublemaker who was, you know, just a (laughs) rebel from birth who just didn't want to have anything to do with all of the laws and mores of the 19th century, which kept women in their kitchens and tending to their babies and their husbands. She just thought that was ridiculous I want to be friends with her (laughs) I know she's great and the best thing about her is she's hilarious she's very funny as I discovered in her letters and as this young woman at the Seward House Mm -hmm. told me uh, Martha Coffin Wright put the funny into feminism and it's so true you know just she's just a wonderful character I mean who
0: would have thought you have just come upon these women that are just incredible for their time
1: Incredible for their time. Now Martha, I discovered afterward because I was curious about all of this, and I sort of, even though I had to finish my other book, I sort of, I just wanted to know more about these women. So I found out that Frances Seward, her her entire, uh, all of the letters she had ever written to her husband and her very the sister to whom she was very close were archived at the University of Rochester. So I called up the the curator there. And I said, well, do they still exist? And she said, oh, yes. And when they were dedicated to the library, they were set aside as worthless. Now that was in around 1840, I mean, 1947. So that was completely infuriating. And of course, I knew, I now knew from this young woman at the Seward House Museum that they couldn't possibly be worthless. She was a real, you know, under the radar. She was a real troublemaker. Uh, So I realized that no historian had really fully explored those. And then a book, a scholarly book had been written about Martha Coffin Wright, which I read and I discovered how funny she was and all of, and the fact that she worked side by side with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony in the, the, the first wave Uh, women's rights movement. And she was one of the organizers of the Seneca Falls Convention, which took place very close to Auburn. So it turns out that that whole part of Western New York state was just kind of a seething hotbed of radicals beneath the largely conservative exterior. So there was just so much to explore. And it it was, I mean, the reason it took me seven years, I mean, I have a job, but it also just turned out to be incredibly rich. Um, and so the book takes you through the 1850s, basically and the antebellum period, all of the incredibly uh, dynamic years leading up to the Civil War and then through the Civil War. Two of the women, Francis and Martha, they sent their sons into battle, but Bo- both young men almost lost their lives, one at Gettysburg. So, you know, there was, it was like action packed and full and, and starring these 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 undercover agents, you know, you know, who would really I mean people knew about Tubman's underground railroad extractions, right. but they didn't really know very much about the rest of her life at all. Right. Okay, so I have two questions.
0: Have you ever thought about maybe teaching a college course? Because this this subject matter
1: is so incredible. You know I hadn't actually thought about the court but I thought oh maybe there's a podcast in this you know there there clearly to me clearly there's a movie or a you That's know a netflix when is the movie because this could yeah. be funny educational entertaining everything Yeah and I think it would have to be a series because it, it does take you over such a long period of time and you you have to kind of weave together the three stories and right. sometimes the women are acting together but more often each is going her own way but pursuing exactly the same goals so it's and then they they come together periodically at at you know explosive moments like when the fugitive slave act is passed each one of them responds in a particular way
0: i feel like their personalities complement one another
1: They told, even though they were so different and superficially, you would think, you know, different races, different classes, because Martha, Martha was middle class, she had six children, she did you know, she really was at home all day, every day had to do the cooking, the cleaning. She had to change the hay and the mattress. She had to, I mean, it was just, she had to haul the water from the well to bathe the children. It was never ending. What am I complaining about? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It was yeah. just throw the clothes in the washing machine. No, it was just, it was, she just found it completely unbearable. Well, her husband went off and, you know, did sort of, he was a lawyer and he did sort of kind of interesting things in his office. And she was, she could do that. So it, so th- there she was, and she was the, she was funny and rebellious. Frances was very quiet, and it was all she was seething too, but it was all kind of under the surface. And so she channeled her rage through her letters to her husband, who was anti-slavery, but was not as radical as she was. So she was basically lobbying him all the time to stay true to his conscience and abolish slavery immediately, even though he said, it's not time, it's not time. Uh, and then and then, Tubman, once they got to know her well, because she made, uh, Auburn is midway across New York State, so she made, once she got to know them, she made stops at their at their little safe houses both of them they had their basement kitchens as as shelters uh she she got to know them very well and uh she became a source of incredible inspiration to them just think of what she meant to them these two white women who were you know notionally all for the things that Harriet Tubman was for but this woman had gone at she grew up in slavery, age 27. She leaves her free Black husband who will not go with her because he thinks it's too dangerous. She leaves her parents and her siblings. She walks out of slavery uh, in Maryland, a hundred miles to Philadelphia, finds mm-hmm. a job, finds a room, gets to know all the abolitionists there, and then begins this series of extractions, which yeah. no nobody did. You don't go yeah. back into slavery, especially during the fugitive slave law. it's. Incredibly dangerous to do that. And she never, she, she, she has succeeded on every, she took a dozen trips, succeeded on every single one of them. Amazing.
0: Just to have that inner strength and that that, that drive to do that at
1: that time. Well, a- absolutely. And that is the thing about Harriet Tubman that is, I-, I still, I'm still just awed by her. She just, she set her mind to what she was going to do. And she just did it. Now she thought she believed that God spoke to her directly. She was deeply religious. She could hear His voice in her head. She said so. Um, at one point, she's she's got you know six passengers with her. They're in a. They're being closely followed by a, a slave catcher they can you know almost hear them behind her she's trying to figure out which route to take and she hears god tell her as she describes it to cross this uh tidal stream which goes up to her neck she can't swim and the her passengers or men don't want to do it they can't swim either and they think it's too dangerous so she won't, they won't do anything until she does it so she crosses the stream they then come with her they make their way to delaware where she has a very close trusted uh uh man who helps her and she's gotten this horrible cold you know she's got she's really sick and he's this man who, who's her close friend by them is really worried about her but she has a bad tooth and it's the tooth that's bothering her so, so she picks up a stone and she knocks it out and then she that's feels fine yeah <laughs> i mean wouldn't you do the same thing i'm just gonna knock the tooth out <laughs>
0: oh my gosh yeah. um how here you here you are You have this, you know, full-time job, executive editor of The New Yorker, and you're writing this book, and it took you, you were so dedicated, you just never gave up. Did you feel like, you know, you were just so passionate, you just had to just get this out there?
1: Yeah, I sort of did. I mean, needless to say, there were really difficult moments along the way, and it's hard hard to write a biography of one person, and then to write a kind of triple biography, and to get yourself into, I wanted it to be a, a, a compulsive kind of narrative and to get myself into the head of this fugitive slave who, who's who been put up on this pedestal. So she, Tubman, it, it's very hard to kind of get to the actual person. And I really wanted readers to get a sense of who she was with her faults too. Yeah. Um, so that took a long time to figure out. So I dedicated my weekends and my vacations, but there was something so compelling about each of these women. And I remember Doris Kearns Goodwin saying once when she was working on her uh, book about uh, Lincoln and his cabinet, she said, you know, I never regretted any of the time I spent with Abraham Lincoln. And I just thought, what a wonder. And of course, you know, I, I, I wish I had written a whole book about Lincoln. I, he's just incredible. And he's a, he, you know, he plays a small part in my book, but that's kind of the way I felt about these women. They were really inspirational. Uh, And I hope they will be, especially to young, young women, too, who have lived through such a, you know, difficult time and may not feel terribly hopeful about the the country's future right now. Right. That's that's why I
0: felt like you were so passionate about this. You had to get it out there because these messages of these women in that time are so they're resonating right now.
1: Yeah. And the thing that is so, so I'm writing the book and I, uh, doing the research and I come across this passage of, of Martha reading her, I'm reading her letter, writing to her sister in 1840, saying that she was arguing with her husband because she was saying that the woman she had, she had hired to help her with her sewing, because she made all the clothes by hand for her family, you know, including for her six children and her husband, um, that this woman, should be paid the same thing that they paid the man who helped him with his her husband with his outdoor chores. 1840, equal wages for women. He, th- he thought that was the most preposterous thing he had ever heard. It and so she wrote, I know. No. So she writes in her letter. So David went off to hoe his asparagus. He didn't want to hear any more of this nonsense. You know, so that, again, it's just so vivid. And I thought, okay, so women today are still, still fighting, for fighting the good fight. Yes,
0: still Oh, my gosh. What else would you like people to know about the book?
1: Well, I guess what the thing, the other thing that I kept thinking about is that here, these went. I I like looking at history kind of from an inside out perspective, a way that uh, that uh, mostly male historians, uh, you know, until very recently have have looked at history, which is, you know, look at the men who shaped the world. I like to look at the Americans who have been forgotten, who lived through times of enormous change and helped bring it about. So here are these three women who had no political power at all. Uh, you know, on the contrary, they were the most powerless members of society. And yet look at they and the, the, the chance of their succeeding with any of their goals for women's rights and to abolish slavery were vanishingly small. It just seemed absolutely inconceivable, yet they did it. So one of the, I kept thinking through how do social movements succeed? And what, what does it take to make these kinds of things happen? And they were of course, part of these two great revolutionary grassroots movements of the 19th century. And so it was kind of the second American revolution and we are seeing some of this now, and we have been seeing it for some time. Black Lives Matter. Why, why suddenly, after, you know, forever, when, when white cops have been beating up, on and killing black men with impunity? Why is this now a gigantic issue that the entire country is grappling with? Because Black Lives Matter and other grassroots groups have said this has to stop right uh, so and me too the me too movement francis's sister was being beaten up regularly by her husband this was a very common occurrence in the 19th century even more common than it is today and of course it's still happening yeah. and so me too how long did it take for me too to kind of erupt into a thing where powerful men were actually called to account right. so and that is still unfolding so this is But this is the way it happens. And unfortunately, we have to keep revisiting these terrible um, sins of America, as these women would call it, of America's past in order to to keep fighting and to keep getting past them. And they were so close to the American Revolution, really only two generations away, they, they totally believed in the Declaration of Independence. And they thought, that this country, if it was gonna be a democracy, could only succeed if there was true equality. So they, what they meant by equality was true social equality. So right. Martha Coffin Wright was, was uh, called a very dangerous women, woman by her d- neighbors because she invited Frederick Douglass to have dinner with her and spend the night. And she thought, well, this is the way I teach people. You teach by example. Yes. And this is, this is the way it has to be and someday it will be. Amazing. Mm. This is an outstanding
0: read. I mean, congratulations. It's, it's just so relevant.
1: Uh, how does it feel right now? Well, it's, I'm still sort of swept up in the, in the publicity, but it feel, I, it's really gratifying to hear from readers. And uh, my father was, was an editor for most of his career, but he started out as a novelist. And I remember him telling me when he was still writing, that the most gratifying part of being a writer is hearing from your readers, and I just think that's so true. and so you you as a writer you're you're laboring away you know year after year often uh, in in solitude and it's lonely and it's frustrating and it's difficult. and you aren't sure that other people will see your characters the way you do and that they'll respond as viscerally as you have and people seem really do seem to be responding that way so far. so I'm thrilled. Have you always loved history? I mean, when you were younger, taking history classes? Not at all. Not at all. However, when I look back, my grandmother had this very powerful influence on me. I was named after her. I wrote my first book about her. And she's in that book, I say she, she was one of the first women to go to College. He went to Smith College. And she talked about one of her history professors. And she said, oh, I love those classes because he made history come alive. And he made you feel that those people were just like you are, you know, that they're, they're, they're with you today. And so I thought that's the kind of history I'm interested in. And that often isn't taught, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, the way history was taught, especially for me, it was just so boring. Here's a textbook, You know, read some of the facts, regurgitate the facts. I couldn't, couldn't get into it.
1: Yeah, no, not even in college. I I did take a a graduate course uh, about Lincoln and the Civil War with a great Civil War historian, David Herbert Donald. And so that, but that was back in 1989. And, but it had been kind of percolating in the back of my head. And I had gotten interested in, you know, a different period of American history when I wrote my previous book. So I, and I've been, so I've, and I've always loved Lincoln. I just find him such an endlessly fascinating character, as were so many of these figures, Charles Sumner, and even the the the, uh, the 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 less appealing characters in the book, Henry Clay, they all make, uh, John Brown, they all make appearances, and you get to know them through these women, which is kind of amazing. And they write very, very frankly about all of them.
0: I love how lit up you are. I mean, it's, if anything, people are going to see this conversation and think, look at what she did, she submersed herself in history and you know, the, just the backstories of all these women and you brought this to life.
1: Well, thanks, it's a, it's a long road. I say, I, you know, I'm an editor for the most part and so I often say to my writers, why are you a writer? It's so hard, but <laughs> you know, you get, it's, it's an obsessive quest once you're into it, you can't, you can't t- tear right. yourself away.
0: Well, I mean, it's definitely a state of flow for me you know, you get into that flow state, in that term I love in positive psychology, where you lose yourself. You get involved in yes. whether it's fiction or nonfiction. That is something very powerful for people to experience right now. Yes, it is, and I
1: I did feel, even though my book is full of blood and and tragedy, but somehow to it be, to be able to take myself away from the particular horrors that we're living. And now, and learn so much, you know, you can spend, as you know, you can spend an entire day and it's, it's, you look up and it feels like in you know, only an hour has passed. Exactly. It's, it's really extraordinary. And then it's with you. You've got, you have got these characters who are kind of with you for life. Definitely.
0: One last thing I, I wanted to ask, because even you touched on it, how, you know, here, we're in a mental health pandemic, especially the younger generation. They've lost jobs, internships, milestones, What advice would you give someone who, you know, is writing, they're struggling, or they want to pivot and get involved in in writing?
1: I think you just have to follow, you know, you you have to get past this. And I think everyone, especially right now, after a year plus of the pandemic, feels exhausted and a little depressed. And you have to just kind of somehow tap into what excites you or what enrages you. And that's one of the things that these women were driven, I think, by rage at at the absolute injustices that they were experiencing and that other Americans were experiencing. And then, as they got as they as they built their networks, they realized how much they had in common with everybody else who was fighting for the same goal. So, and also that positive change can happen, and you can help make it happen. And I think that's an incredibly kind of. uh, inspiring idea that, that you aren't just this kind of passive uh, sufferer and, and look at Harriet Tubman, what she had to overcome in order to, to do what she did. Yes. Where can people find out more about you in the book? So I have my website, Darth wickenden.com that's probably the easiest uh way to because i've got a slideshow there on this book and also on my previous book and then it lists all my events so that's that's probably the the best place to check and it's been reviewed by the new york times and the wall street journal and uh, the star tribune and various others so amazing well congratulations thank you so much it's so nice to talk to you